Well, good morning. Welcome to Christ the King. Uh, if you are a guest or a visitor here, welcome. Uh, we are glad that you're here. My name is Penny, and I'm the pastor here. Uh, if this is your, if you're new, if you've been here for a couple weeks, or maybe this is your first Sunday and I haven't had the chance to meet you, I would love to meet you after the service. Uh, if you uh, stick around a little bit, I, I would love to greet you and welcome you because we are glad that you're with us this morning. Um, as we come and we worship our God, as we uh, sing to him and offer prayers and as we sit under his word. And the portion of his word that we're going to be looking at this morning is 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter 3, uh, you can find it uh, printed in your order of service if you don't have a Bible, uh, but I would encourage you to have the passage in front of you as uh, it is a, a rather... Um, uh, interesting passage, let's put it that way, and you'll, uh, you'll see what I mean in a few moments, but uh, it's, it's uh, a difficult passage. It's, it's one of three Christological passages in First Peter. Now, Christological is just this big word that we use that is indicating that its emphasis is upon the person and work of Jesus. And uh, Peter is giving us this Christological passage here in First Peter 3 at, at a very appropriate time. You remember this letter is being written to people who are suffering, who are being persecuted. He has called them to endure persecution, to endure suffering, to live lives of submission. And, and as they're living this way, it, it would be easy for them to start, start to think, like, why would I do this? <laughs> why would I submit to authorities who have been placed over me? It's a lot easier to live as an authority unto myself. It would be a lot easier to be in rebellion against these people. I mean, I had no say in whether they had this authority over me in my work or in the government or in my home. So, so why would I do this? It would be easy for his listeners to, sit, to hear what Peter has been saying already, that we are to live as exiles and strangers and foreigners in this world and feel like they're being surrounded, like they're isolated from uh, others, that they're being marginalized and ignored. And so it would be easy for them to live with a lack of hope. It'd be easy for them to think that perhaps the, the task that Peter has given them to live with hope, to endure, to persevere, that, that that task is impossible. And so this portion of his scripture comes at just the right time to give them for relief, to give them motivation, to give them enablement to live the way that Peter is calling them to live. And so let's go ahead and read 1 Peter 3. We're going to begin in verse 13 and go to the end of the chapter. Peter writes, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, having put to death in the flesh, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the, in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. 
not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we, we need your help, and we need your grace, and we need your kindness. We need it not just this moment, but we need it every day of every moment of our lives. And so we ask that you would give it, and that you would grant it, and that you would allow the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts to please you, to give you honor and glory. Be with us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. June 6, 1944 is a very famous day, a day that many of us know just by me saying the date. This is the day of D-Day, where 160,000 soldiers and 200,000 naval personnel invaded German-occupied Normandy. Now, this is a great day in the history of the world, a day that we celebrate, but on that day, we know that it, it wasn't all great. That was actually quite difficult. 50,000 American soldiers stormed the beach at Omaha Beach, and, and as they did so, they ran into heavy fire. Right? They were mowed down. They were gunned down. In fact, uh, the fire, the German line was so strong that only two of 16 tanks made it ashore. They, they were confronted by this line that was far stronger than they ever thought. The official record says that within 10 minutes of the ramps being lowered, the leading company had become inert, leaderless, and almost incapable of action. It had become a struggle for survival and rescue. The German line was too strong. It was, it was too tough. The, the men who were storming the beach were, were being confronted by uh, an army, by soldiers that, that had the higher ground and that were pinning them down. In fact, one report I read said that some of the ground commanders on that day actually considered retreat, considered, considered abandoning the mission because they couldn't envision victory. Now, I also read another report of bombers. Some of the, the men who had flown these bombing missions uh, hours before, as, as they had dropped their bombs behind enemy lines, they were coming back and they were flying over Normandy. And as they were looking down, some of them reported it, it looked like fireflies in the night sky, all the bombs going off, all the, the guns being fired. And, and some of these pilots, they reported that as they were looking down upon these men, who from the men's perspective, the, the soldiers on the ground thought that they could never advance. From the bomber's perspective, they saw very slowly that they were advancing. Very slowly they were taking ground. Very slowly the German line was starting to crumble and to weaken. Now from the perspective of the men on the ground, it, it was too tough. It was too difficult. The line was too strong, but as soon as you got above and you had the perspective, you could take it all in, they were sure that the line would break, that victory was theirs. It's amazing what a change of perspective can do for us as we're in the midst of difficulty and in the midst of struggle. 
And that's what Peter's doing in this passage. You see, he's taking these men who are surrounded, this church who is suffering, who is being persecuted, who is called to live as exiles, who's called to be a blessing to their enemies. And he is taking them and pausing and taking them and lifting their eyes and giving them a 20,000-foot view of what's really happening. You see, Peter is calling them and us to lift our eyes from our experience and draw our attention to Christ. You see, that's what this passage is about, right? I already said it's a Christological passage. That as these people are called to live as exiles, as foreigners in this land, that they are to keep their eyes fixed on Christ. And so Peter is doing this by calling us to lift our eyes up. And to see the victory that Christ has. See, that's the point of this passage. That Christ is the triumphant one. That Christ is the one who has victory over all. That's what the latter half of our passage is focused on. Verses 18 through 22. It is focusing our attention on the fact that Christ reigns victoriously. That he is the triumphant one. And so that's where we're going to start. We're going to start this morning by looking at the victory of Christ. And, and as we do so, I, I do want to say just before we jump in, that is this portion of 1 Peter 3 that is some of the most difficult to understand in the entire book. In fact, uh, Martin Luther, the great reform thinker, uh, he said this. He said, this is a strange text and certainly a more obscure passage than any other passage in the New Testament. He wrote, I still do not know what the apostle meant. (laughs) So in the next 20 or so minutes that we have left, we're just going to solve all these problems, right? (laughs) No, no. The truth is is that there are a lot of differing opinions about these verses. Um, And when I say differing opinions, I mean by, by people that we would respect, theologians that we would call our friends, like orthodox people, right? Good reformed people are going to differ on this passage. And so instead of spending all of our time talking about who are the spirits and, and what did Jesus proclaim and where did he go, and all, we're going to have to deal with some of those. But, but I want us to see that the, the emphasis, the point of Paul, Peter, excuse me, Peter talking about all of these confusing and debatable issues is because he's pointing us to the fact that Jesus is victorious. You see, with all the differing opinion about who the spirits are and when did Jesus go proclaim and what did he proclaim, there is almost 100% unanimity in the fact that Jesus, that Peter is giving us this to inform us and to confirm to us that Jesus reigns, that he rules, that he is triumphant, that he is victorious. And what is he victorious over? Well, verse 18 tells us. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but he's made alive in the Spirit. So this is clearly a reference to Christ's resurrection. It's telling us that the grave cannot contain him, that death cannot rule over him. They did not have the final say over him. It's speaking of Christ's resurrection. But did you notice that before Peter speaks of his resurrection, he speaks of Christ's suffering. He speaks of his death. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. 
Now, what's fascinating is that the other two Christological passages in 1 Peter, in chapter 1 and chapter 2, while they both, all three of them, talk about Christ's victory, they all also talk about his suffering. They talk about his death. And the reason for this is because before there is resurrection, there is death. And before there is victory, there is suffering. That this is what Christ has gone through, and this actually becomes paradigmatic for us. This is what our lives entail as well. Peter's readers would have known this firsthand, but, but so too should we. That as the poem, The Valley of Vision, puts it, that the way down is the way up. That to be low is to be high. That the broken heart is the healed heart. The contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit. The repenting soul is the victorious soul. To bear the cross is to wear the crown. That the road of triumph goes through suffering. That that's where Christ's life took him. That there is victory, but there is suffering, but there is victory. Christ has victory over death and hell and the grave. And that is what he proclaims. That's what he declares in verse 19. It says that Jesus suffered, he was made alive, and then he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. Okay, so what did he proclaim? <laughs> this, this is where we get a little, um, we, we start to get a little hairy and we start asking questions and wondering, who are these spirits and what did Jesus proclaim and when did he go? And for the most part, there are two uh, dominant positions that the spirits were either the spirits of Noah's day, the human spirits, the people. So Jesus, via the Holy Spirit, proclaimed the gospel to them or it's spirits in a demonic sense, that these are angelic beings who are in prison. Okay, now I'm not going to go through why I believe one over the other, but I'll simply put it this way. Um, I do think that is the spirits in prison are demonic spirits, that they're demonic spirits. If you want more on this, I can send you more information, but I think that they are demonic spirits who are in judgment because of their rebellion as accounted in Genesis chapter 6. And that Jesus, during his ascension into heaven, declared to those spirits that he was victorious over them. And the reason why it's during his ascension is because verse 22 is moving us to see that the ascension of Christ is central to his work. Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven. He is the one who has ascended into heaven, and as he goes into heaven, he proclaims his victory. And then at the end of verse 22, we're told, over angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Now that language of angels and authorities and powers, it's, it's not just um, powers of this world, but it's also the, the powers of the world that we cannot see. It's powers of, of the angelic world, principalities and authorities. The, that world that, that as modern Westerners, we tend not to think much about, but that is actually occurring right now. Like there is an angelic world around us, a spiritual world around us, that, that Jesus has authority over them. And so as he ascends into heaven, he is declaring his victory over them. He's declaring that he reigns. You see, Jesus' reign isn't just over our lives. 
And it isn't just over the world in which we inhabit. It's in the war over the world that we do not see. Christ's death and resurrection and ascension shows that he is the ruler over all. So regardless of whether you, you would affirm my understanding of the spirits or not, I didn't give a long explanation, but, but whether it is spirits in the demonic sense or human spirits, the point is, is that Jesus is triumphant. That he sits on the throne of David right now. That he is ruling and reigning from heaven. That he is given the greatest place and prominence and authority over the heavens and the earth. In fact, so much so that the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2 says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every knee will bow. Some of us will bow in honor and reverence and respect, and others will be forced to bow their knee. Every tongue will confess. Some of us will confess that he is Lord with rejoicing and celebration, and others will do it through gritted teeth. But regardless, Christ reigns. He rules. Every knee and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. What does this have to do with exiles? <laughs> Why is this something that Peter is going to emphasize for his hearers? Why is this important for us? It, what does this have to do with us living submissive lives today? Everything. It has everything to do with it. Because think about the, what Peter has just said, that, that these people are supposed to live under the authorities that have been placed above them. Right? Authorities in the home, in the political sphere, in their places of work. But what Peter is telling them is that even though you live under those authorities, there is an authority greater than them, to which all people live under. See, the truth is, is that every authority is a derived authority. All angels, all authorities, all powers are subject to him. And Jesus alludes to this. He, he doesn't just allude to it. He makes it explicit when he speaks to Pilate. You remember he's before Pontius Pilate, and Pilate, he's, he's interrogating him. He's asking him questions. And Jesus is kind of playing coy with Pilate. You remember? He's not really answering all his questions. And he's, he's kind of being silent sometimes. And other times he's given these strange answers. And, and Pilate says to him, hey, do, do you know who I am? Right? I, I have the authority to put you to death or to set you free. You should just give me a straight answer. And what does Jesus say to him? Jesus says, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. He basically said, Pilate, you're on borrowed authority. You only can talk to me this way because I let you. Because Christ is the ultimate authority. He is the victorious one, the triumphant one. And because of this, we are to live in light of his victory. We are to live in light of his triumph. And how are we to do this? Well, verse 18 tells us that we live this way with new life. Verse 18, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. You see, Christ's victory is accomplished on our behalf. He shares with us his triumph. 
so that his resurrection becomes our resurrection, that we are raised with him, that we have this new life. And that's what Peter is getting at in verse 21. He's drawing us into this new life. He says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I, I recognize that probably when I read earlier in the sermon, that there are some of you who have not left that verse. <laughs> Baptism now saves you, right? It, it can get a little confusing because it sounds like Peter's saying um, baptismal regeneration, which basically is our, our theological way of saying that once you're baptized, then you are regenerate, you are made new, and that you, you must be baptized in order to be made new. And as uh, good Protestants, we, we want to push against that, right? Uh, we want to push against that because that would be adding to the gospel, and it would be. In fact, Peter says, basically, it can't be that because baptism isn't about the removal of dirt, right? He's, he's pointing us to something more than just the outward expression. And we also know that baptism can't save us because there are even those in Scripture, like the thief on the cross who wasn't baptized, and yet Jesus said, you will be in my presence tonight. You will be with me in paradise. So how do we understand this? Baptism doesn't save us in the sense of being regenerate. But if you notice what Peter says, not as a removal of dirt, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, baptism itself doesn't remove moral sinfulness. Rather, baptism is a request to God for a clear conscience. Baptism is an outward expression of our dependence upon God. It's taking that sign of, of God's people upon ourselves. And it is a way of us depending upon him for our salvation, looking to what it is that Christ has done through his resurrection. You see, it is the resurrection of Christ that is the event that brings salvation. Christ's resurrection, that is the victory over sin and death. That is the event that enables us to live in light of Christ's victory. Baptism is simply a demonstration of us depending upon God for this new life. This new life that is brought to bear through the resurrection of Christ. So what does this new life look like? Well, verses 14 and 15 tell us. Verses 14 and 15. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So what does this new life look like? Living in light of Christ's victory, it means living with hope a hope that is evident. Again, think about the context. Peter has said to these people, live lives of submission. He has said, seek good to those who do you ill. He said, be, be a blessing to your enemies. And these actions would be curious, right? They would be strange. As I said last week, like, who lives this way? No one in our world does, right? We, don't, we return ill with ill, not blessing. But for Peter, his expectation is that when we live in light of Christ's victory, 
that as we live with exilic blessing to our neighbor, it will invite questions about our behavior. That, that we would have a hope that is so evident, so contradictory to the world around us, that people wouldn't, they would have to ask us about it. They would have to say to us, what, what is it in you that causes you to live this way? That that's the way our lives should be lived before the world. What makes you unique? I actually have a friend who had this happen to him. My friend John, he doesn't live here in Roanoke. He's a software engineer, and he works for a company that, um, that has government-contracted planes. He, he works on fighter planes. He does engineering for that. And so most of his job is classified, so he can't tell me what he actually really does, um, which is kind of fun. You know, like, I could tell you, but I'd have to kill... No, he's never said that, but... Um, but, but he, he works in one of these fields, and so he's never really been able to tell me what he does, but he, he has told me about uh, some of the conversations he's had with his coworkers. You see, uh, a lot of the people that work with John aren't believers, and his boss certainly isn't. And so he, he goes about his day, and he does his job, and he works hard, and he works with diligence and a high degree of ethic, and, and he actually works with joy, and seeks the good of others around him. And so one day, his boss comes to him, and she's perplexed. And so finally, she just had to ask him, John, what is with you? <laughs> like, I don't understand how it is that you can work so hard day to day, but, but yet it's clear that your job isn't your whole life. I, I don't understand how you can work with such great ethic and, and hard work, and yet at the same time you care for others around you. I, I, I don't understand. Like the way that you go about your day seems so contrary to what I'm used to. What's up? That's basically what she said. Like, what makes you so different? You're kind of weird. And John had never before shared his faith with his boss. He, he wasn't leaving tracks around the office, right? He wasn't trying to slip in little, you know, I can do all things through Christ. He's trying, like, he wasn't doing any of that. And so his boss had no idea that John was a Christian. And so in the next few minutes, with gentleness and kindness, he was able to give a reason for the hope that is in him. When she said, I don't understand how you live the way you live, he could point to one who has lived that way on his behalf. That his hope was so evident that it invited question. And so he spoke about Christ. It made, made me wonder when he told me this story. It started to make me wonder, I, I wonder what my life says about the hope that is in me. It started to make me wonder about the church and made me wonder, like, what, what do our words tell others about where we're placing our trust? It made me wonder, what, what do our responses to situations and circumstances tell us about where we're putting our faith? I mean, if we took stock of all of our words and our behaviors, would, would they say that, that we're putting our hope in security, financial or physical? But Peter says, do not fear. Would our lives say that we're putting our hope in our plans for the future? But Peter says, don't be troubled. Would, 
Would our words and our behaviors say that we are resting in our ability to, to put someone in their place and argue them down and have the, best, have the best and final word for them? But Peter says that, that we're to make our defense with gentleness and respect. I wonder if our lives would say that we're trusting in presidents or elected officials or judges. I mean, you know, Charlie prayed for it, but y'all know there's an election coming up, right? <laughs> right? Your mailbox is full of flyers just like mine. Are we putting our hope in those people to get into office? Because Peter says that we are to honor Christ, the Lord is holy. Where are we putting our hope? It started to make me wonder when John told me this story, it made me wonder if, if maybe I and we don't get asked where our hope is, is because it looks like we're hoping in the same things everyone else is. But our hope isn't in those things. Our hope isn't in presidents or princes or bank accounts or jobs. Our hope isn't in husbands or wives or children or degrees. Our hope is in Christ. His victory, Christ's present and future reign. You see, friends, that changes everything. That changes our present living. That we would hope in the one who has defeated the grave. That our lives would be filled with hope in the one who rose to new life. That we would have hope in Christ the King who rules over heaven and earth. That that is where our hope is. And when our hope is in him, our lives are going to look different from the world. They are going to look like a contradiction to our neighbors. Our rhetoric is going to be filled with kindness and respect, and our trust will be sure. See, this is how God's people are to live. To live in light of Christ's triumph. And this is how God's people have lived throughout history. In the second century, there's a letter called the Epistle to Dionetes. It's a letter that's written about the way of life of Christians. A particular chapter in this letter focuses on how the Christians are living in this time period. And he writes this, For Christians cannot be distinguished from the rest of the human race by country or language or customs. They do not live in cities of their own, they do not use a peculiar form of speech. They do not follow an eccentric manner of life. Although they live in Greek and barbarian cities alike and follow the customs of the country and clothing and food and other matters of daily living, at the same time they give proof of the remarkable and admittedly extraordinary constitution of their own commonwealth. They live in their own country, but only as aliens. They have a share in everything as citizens and endure everything as foreigners. Every foreign land is to them their fatherland, and yet for them every fatherland is a foreign land. It is true that they are in the flesh, but they do not live according to the flesh. They busy themselves on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. In other words, they have a hope that is not of this world. That the church has a hope in the Christ who reigns. That because Jesus is victorious over death and hell and the grave, 
And because Jesus is triumphant over this world and even the world we cannot see, we live in light of that triumph with hope. We live with triumphant hope because Jesus has triumphed. Let's ask him to help us do it. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would equip us and enable us to live as a light that is set upon a hill, to live as as a light that shines in the midst of darkness, to live a triumphant and extraordinary hope in this foreign land. Help us to live lives in light of Christ's victory so that our lives would be a demonstration to the world that Christ is victorious, that he is the one who reigns and rules. Allow our lives to be lived in that way so that you, Lord Jesus, would be honored and glorified as the king that you are, the king over our lives and the king over this universe. And so we ask this in the strong and mighty name of our king, Lord Jesus. And God's people said, Amen.